Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing in the book of Acts. We are going through the entire book of Acts, all 28 chapters, and this is divided into 12 separate parts that we are looking at. We are presently in part 6 of those 12 parts, and all of the notes, all of the recordings for all of these are available through our church website, new-life-ministries.org. You can listen in live on the phone Wednesday nights at 7.30 or online at mixlr.com and follow the broadcast name New Life Ministries. All of the recordings are also stored there at mixlr.com and you can also subscribe to our podcast, the New Life Ministries podcast, You'll get all the updates as they come in for both the notes and the recordings. Okay, with all that, we want to dig right in tonight because we've come to a very important section in the book of Acts. We're coming now to chapter 9 of Acts. And if you're following in the notes, we are on page 93. Again, this is part 6, page 93 And we're going to begin in Acts 9, looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who would later be known as Paul the Apostle. Powerful, powerful section in the book of Acts. And it actually is sort of a dividing point for a number of reasons. Uh, We've now completed... Phase 1 and Phase 2 of what was outlined for us in Acts 1-8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Phase 1. In Judea and Samaria, we've done that now. That's Phase 2. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. God is now getting ready for that launch out to the ends of the earth. And a very important personage that we've already been introduced to, but now is going to take center stage, is Saul of Tarsus, to become Paul the Apostle. And we saw a couple of hints in the final verses of Acts 7, with the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the early church, one of the seven deacons chosen in chapter 6, and then a little bit more information in the opening verses of chapter 8. I'll read those again, Acts 8, 1, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. That's Stephen. So Saul was very much a part of this putting to death of Stephen, and more importantly, it says in verse 3, and Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So, we haven't heard any more about Saul after that until chapter 9. And what I love about Acts chapter 9, especially, is God can do anything. I want to tell you, God can do anything. 
There is nobody, there is nothing that God can't deal with. I don't care how strong, how powerful the persecutor or the persecutors are, God can deal with them in one instant. And it's always according to his will, his timing, and his plan that all of this takes place. Well, Saul's number has come up now, and it's his time, and God has a plan for this man. His days of murderous persecution, threatening and imprisoning Christians, those days are coming to an end, and God has a new chapter for this man. I want to read Acts 9 from verse 1 down to verse 19, so we get the full power of the testimony that Luke is sharing with us here. Acts 9 from verse 1 to 19. Meanwhile, now that's an important word, because we've just finished in chapter 8, centering mostly on Philip, his ministry in Samaria, the miracles that took place there, the apostles going down and praying for them all to receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, we ended last time with Philip's ministry out in the middle of the desert to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he's whisked away by the Spirit of God to another city uh, 30 miles away. I mean, tremendous miracles are taking place in chapter 8. Meanwhile, so while all that's going on, Saul is still very actively persecuting Christians. And it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Notice that word, murderous. And we're going to find, I think pretty clearly tonight, Stephen was just the first of many martyrs. Many other Christians after him have already been put to death. And Saul was certainly instrumental in many of those martyrs. It says, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. <clears throat> as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, I love that word, suddenly, God likes to do things suddenly, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in the vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. <clears throat> Amazing story. Full of miracles. Many, many miracles. And we'll try to touch on as many of them as we can. But this is the Lord at work. And let me tell you something. As I mentioned at the start tonight, God can do anything. I don't care how big, how powerful, how strong anyone is. He can bring them down to their knees in a moment and start issuing commands to them. <laughs> so, chapter 9, it starts with the apparent uh, position that Saul is in charge. Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He's gone to the high priest and gotten arrest warrants for the Christians all the way up in Damascus, Syria. This is some distance away from Jerusalem. And he's going there with one intent. If he found any who belong to the way, meaning any Christians, whether men or women, he was determined to arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem. So that's the backdrop. That's how the chapter begins. And so up until this point, with the exception of Philip and his ministry in Samaria in chapter 8, and Stephen and his brief ministry in chapter 7, most of the attention has been pointed toward the Apostle Peter. He was obviously the prominent leader of the church from the day of Pentecost up until this point. And Peter will again be very important when we get into the next chapter, chapter 10, 
where he first takes the gospel to the Gentiles. But little by little, Peter is going to fade, and the Apostle Paul will become the center figure as the gospel goes increasingly out to the Gentile world. Now, a few bits of trivia about this man, Saul of Tarsus. At this point in time and history, uh, most of the historians tell us that he was probably in his early 30s. He's a fairly young man. He is already highly regarded by all of the rabbis, all of the Jewish council and leaders as one of the most promising young men in Judaism. He was zealous for the law, and obviously from what we've seen in chapter 8 and again here in chapter 9, part of his uh, zeal is directed against the Christians. And we find in Philippians 3 and other places, uh, his zeal far outstripped any other Jews of his day. He was known for his zeal. He was known for his expertise in the Jewish law. Now, it says in verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. We talked about this at the beginning of chapter 8, that Paul seems obsessed with this desire to persecute and to snuff out all of these Christians. And we can only speculate, but standing there and witnessing everything that happened to Stephen, uh, I have to believe that it had a profound effect on this man Saul of Tarsus. And he would talk about that later in his own testimonies, Uh, about this experience. But note these words. He was still, so he's still very much obsessed with getting these Christians, arresting them, and yes, even seeing them put to death. It says specifically, he was still breathing out murderous threats. These were not empty threats. These were murderous threats, and we'll see that a little later, against the Lord's disciples. King James reads, he was still breathing out threatenings and slaughter. The Amplified Version reads, he was still drawing his breath hard from threatening and murderous desire. This is a like a madman. He's just obsessed with destroying the Christian church. He's breathing hard. He's, He's breathing out threats and slaughter and murder and like a madman. He's just chasing down these Christians like a hunter, like a predator going after its prey. And he has a plan. It says he went to the high priest and asked him for letters. Those are actually arrest warrants. Asked him for letters 
to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there, any, any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. These are not empty threats. He's not just going there and saying, hey guys, you better stop preaching the name of Jesus. No, he's going there ready to lock up the Christians. So he got the authority from the high priest to go to Damascus on this mission of arresting every single Christian he could find. The Message Bible actually says he got arrest warrants. And this is the first of a number of references in the book of Acts to the Christians or the early church by the name The Way. Very interesting. We're used to referring to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. But the church came to be known as the way. And I've given a number of other references in the book of Acts where you can find this in your notes. Acts 16, 18, 19, 22, 24. You find it a number of times. The Christians in the early church were simply known as the way. They were so much like Jesus They were such an expression of the one who said, I am the way, that they came to be known as the way. We'll find in chapter 11, they were so like Christ that in Antioch they were first called Christians, Christians, just like Christ. So, Paul, still known as Saul at this point, is going with arrest warrants specifically to find any who belong to this sect, this movement known as the way. And he's not just going to a suburb of Jerusalem. He's going all the way up to Damascus. There's still, of course, a a modern Damascus located in the country of Syria today, that's the same city. Damascus, at this time in history, was a Roman province of Syria. And we're talking about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. In those days, it would have been at least a four to six days journey. So, Paul, in his madness in his obsession to round up these Christians, he's willing to go 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria. Now, interesting side note, there are already many Christians there in Damascus. So, although we normally point to Acts chapter 10, where Peter preaches to the household of Cornelius, as the real start of the ministry to the Gentiles, it has actually already begun. Remember in Acts 8, the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered everywhere because of Saul's persecution. It says they were scattered and they went everywhere 
preaching. So obviously, many of them had traveled as far as Damascus, Syria, by this point in time, 150 miles from Jerusalem. And there's already a number of Christian converts found there. Most of them likely to be Jewish converts. Uh, We don't know if there were any Gentiles there in Damascus that had already gotten converted, but it's possible. But we do know that Damascus had a large Jewish population. And these Jewish believers from Jerusalem that had been scattered there, they went preaching the good news, and obviously had won many of these Jews in Damascus to Jesus Christ. So there's now a thriving community of Messianic Jewish believers, Jews who believe in Jesus, who lived in Damascus. And word has already reached them that Saul is on his way, breathing out threats and murder. He's coming with arrest warrants. And surely all of the believers in Damascus were trembling, hearing that Saul was on his way there. They knew this guy meant business. They knew that likely many of them were going to be arrested. Some of them would likely be put to death. And so here's Saul on his way to Damascus with uh, arrest warrants in hand, with uh, the zeal that he had to capture and persecute Christians, driving him all the way to this city, 150 miles from Jerusalem. It says in verses 3 and 4, As he neared Damascus, so the Lord let him get quite close to the city. We don't know how close, but it says he neared Damascus. And again, if you're one of the believers in Damascus, you're looking out of your window, I don't know, maybe you even saw his entourage on its way toward Damascus, which further heightens the drama here. He's getting close breathing out threats, murder, and slaughter. But God often seems slow, but he is never late. There's a song we used to sing years ago, he's an on-time God. (laughs) God is always right on time, and right on time, as Saul is nearing Damascus, Suddenly, I love that word, suddenly, God can do things suddenly. Things can change suddenly. People can change suddenly. Situations can be reversed suddenly. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Let me insert something right here. Saul will be persecuting the church no more. It suddenly just came to a stop. No more persecution from Saul. Just like that. All God has to do is shine a light, and it's done. 
a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. Now, this is Saul with all of the authority of Jerusalem in his hands to arrest anyone and everyone, the mighty persecutor of the church. Suddenly, he's on the ground. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul is not the one doing the interrogating now. A voice from heaven is asking the questions. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I think it's helpful at this point for us to jump ahead in the book of Acts to chapter 22 and also to chapter 26 because we have two separate accounts where Paul himself, years later, shares his own account of what Luke is describing here in chapter 9. I think it's interesting to put Luke's account together with Paul's two accounts to get a fuller picture of what really happened. So, in Acts 22 from verse 3 to 11, in this instance, Paul is addressing a crowd in Jerusalem. Again, this is years later. After he has been arrested, and here's what he has to say to them. Acts 22, from verse 3 to 11. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Now pause. We don't read that in Acts 9. There's there's no indication from Luke's account that Paul slash Saul was actually persecuting Christians to their death. But Paul himself does admit to that later on. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. So, that's why I mentioned earlier, Stephen was the first fruits. He was the first of many martyrs. All of their names are not given. But we presume that by this point in time, many other Christians have shed their blood and given their lives as the ultimate sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and the council can testify. Remember, he had gone to them for letters, for arrest warrants. They would have known all this. They would have confirmed the fact that, yes, this is Saul, the one we sent to Damascus with full authority to arrest Christians, and yes, even put some of them to death. So, as also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem 
to be punished. Notice Paul is adding more details that we don't find in Acts 9. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. They heard something, that's what Acts 9 says, but they didn't understand the voice who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Now, going a little further ahead into Acts 26, when Paul is witnessing to King Agrippa from verse 9 to 15 in Acts 26. Here's what Paul says there. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and, listen carefully to this, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So very clearly now, Paul is confirming, by now, many Christians have died as martyrs, not just Stephen. Others have joined him. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And here's another detail that we're, we've not heard before. I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's another detail we don't find in the other accounts. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. So, Saul's on his way to Damascus. He's got full authority, full power to lock the Christians up, punish them. He's even going to try to force them to blaspheme, we just heard. And suddenly, God interrupts his day. Suddenly, God interferes 
with Saul's plan. Suddenly, God can appear on any front, in any situation, and change everything. I want to tell you again, God can do anything. He has all power and all authority in heaven and on the earth. Even the hearts of kings, he can change just like turning on a faucet of water, the Bible says. How suddenly God can show up and change everything. Paul described this light that he saw as brighter than the sun. And we actually learn by putting all three of these accounts together, the brilliance of the light that he saw blinded him for three days. We'll talk a little bit more about that blindness in a minute, but keep that in the back of your mind. The brilliance of this light actually blinded the man for three days and three nights. It says he fell to the ground. Oh, how God can humble the mighty. How he can bring the proud to their knees in an instant. He showed that to King Nebuchadnezzar in the days of Daniel. In all of his arrogance, in all of his pride, Nebuchadnezzar had erected a 90-foot statue of himself and commanded everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship his statue. But oh, how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. And once he was done with him, these are the words of that arrogant, proud king who has now been humbled by a sovereign God. Here are his words. No one can hold back his hand, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. And even in the Old Testament, King Saul of Israel, who was chasing after David, trying to kill him, and persecuted him for years, seemed to be uh, powerful, in charge, king over Israel. But, Oh, how his life ended, and David lamented thereafter with these words, How the mighty have fallen. How quickly God can bring the mighty, the powerful, the kings of this world down to their knees, groveling on their faces. And such is the case here with Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who had taken such delight in seeing Stephen falling to his knees, about to die as they were pelting him with stones, now finds himself prostrate on the ground, awaiting instructions from the voice that is speaking to him from heaven. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is a fascinating question. And we'll just comment on a couple of things that are pretty obvious here. First of all, if you search the scriptures, this is one of seven instances in the Bible where God repeats an individual's name twice. Obviously, for emphasis. And some of you that are parents, you might understand When you call your child once and he doesn't respond, you might want to call him twice. 
Johnny, Johnny, you better get over here. It's a very emphatic call when God uses a person's name twice. He did it with Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham, Abraham. He did it with Jacob in Genesis 46. Jacob, Jacob. He did it with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses, Moses. He did it with little Samuel when he was asleep in the temple in Eli's day. 1 Samuel 3. Samuel, Samuel. He did it with Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha, Martha. You're worried, anxious about many things. And he did it with Simon Peter in Luke 22. Simon, Simon. Well, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It goes without saying that this voice and this call very quickly got Saul's undivided attention. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, there's a profound mystery that is revealed here. And this is important for everyone to understand. Those who persecute the church, those who persecute the least little believer, they're persecuting Jesus Christ. He takes it very personally. And you and I need to keep this in mind uh, because of the way we treat other Christians. Jesus takes that very personally. Why? They're members of his body, just as you and I are members of his body. So every harsh word, every threat, every uh, arrest warrant, and yes, maybe even every stone or every beating or whatever was being done to these Christians, Jesus was taking it very personally. And so his interrogation of Saul is, why are you doing this to me? Why do you persecute me? And later on, Paul would be the one to explain this mystery in 1 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 1, in Colossians and other places, that the church is Christ's body, and every believer is a member of Christ, a member of his body. So every time Saul or any other persecutor inflicted pain or suffering on one of the members of his body, it was being felt by the head, Jesus Christ, in heaven. And, you know, in Matthew 25, we're not going to go there, but Jesus, in a parable, he says, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So, whatever treatment is given to the least of his, he takes it very personally. Now, 
I like Saul's answer. Who are you, Lord? (laughs) Who are you, comma, Lord? Saul asked. He seemed to already know the answer to his own question. Who are you? Oh, I think I know who you are. You're the Lord. Who are you, Lord? Notice how quickly everything has changed here. Saul, the one who was just a few moments earlier in full command with the authority of Jerusalem, with arrest warrants in hand, about to lock up Christians and seal their doom, he's now on his face on the ground saying, Who are you, Lord? And he quickly gets an answer. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the word that Saul uses here, translated Lord, who are you, Lord, is the word that's translated throughout the New Testament, the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Greek word kurios, which means supreme in authority. So in other words, who are you, I think you're in full authority here, and I'm not. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Master? Who are you, God? I am Jesus. Oh, we can only imagine what those three words did to Paul's mind and heart. You see, He's thinking, Jesus is dead. We killed him on the cross. We did away with that plague. Now we're trying to get rid of all of his followers, and then we'll be done hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. The last thing he wanted to hear was a voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus. How simple. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I am Jesus. How simple. Saul met Jesus. And I would maintain that is the essence of Christianity right there. It's not just going to church. It's not just reading the Bible. It's not just embracing a doctrine or a creed or agreeing to some system of thought or philosophy. It is an encounter with the living Christ. Don't miss that. Saul is meeting Jesus face to face. He's talking to Jesus face to face. That's what Christianity is all about. Meeting Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for just believing some uh, rules or regulations or doctrines or philosophy. Meet Jesus. Have an encounter with Jesus. God says, if you search for me with your whole heart, you'll find me. Press in and have a meeting with Jesus. Saul met Jesus. Who are you? I am. Am Jesus.
And by the way, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's the second time now he's going to tell Saul that you're persecuting me. Everything you've been doing, you've been doing it against me. As I mentioned, I think at this point in time, Saul was convinced that Jesus was dead. The, The leader of this hated sect called the Way had been done away with, and he was in full persecution mode to exterminate every last follower of that cult called the Way. Uh Uh-oh, he's not dead. I am Jesus. That same Jesus that Saul unwittingly had been persecuting is not dead. He's alive and he's speaking to me right now from heaven. Oops! (laughs) If I'm Saul... I'm on my face, I'm trembling with fear, I am in real trouble. I have been persecuting the Lord of the universe. I am really in a big mess right now. I've devoted my life, supposedly, to serving God and his purposes as a Jew of all Jews, as a zealot for the Jewish religion, and now I'm being told I'm persecuting the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, verse 6, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. It's pretty obvious at this point who's in charge. (laughs) Saul is not in charge anymore. He's on his face. The Lord is giving him commands. He's telling him what to do. Get up, go into the city, and there you will be told what you must do. Now, I find this very interesting. I've pondered this a lot. Jesus knew that Saul was about to become a mighty apostle. Jesus knew everything he was going to do through this man's life and ministry. He could have easily informed Saul right here and now, told him everything about his will concerning him, his call on his life, could have listed all the things he wanted him to do, but instead he chose to make him wait to receive further instructions. Right now, Saul, here's what I want you to do. Get up, go into the city, and you wait for me there. I'll tell you more when we get there. You will be told what you must do. Further instructions are forthcoming. And... What's fascinating about the next part of this story, God was not going to reveal them directly to Saul. Saul would have many visions. 
He would have revelations of God caught up into the third heaven. Surely God could have revealed all this directly to Saul. But he chose not to do it that way. And you and I need to understand why. There's a, there's a very clear purpose in everything that God is doing here. He chose to make him wait three days as a blind man for further instructions from one of the very disciples in Damascus that he likely had an arrest warrant for in his pocket. One of those disciples that he had come to drag off the prison in Jerusalem, now look how the tables have turned. Saul, you're going to sit and you're going to wait until I give you further instructions, and we're about to find out how. It's through a little disciple named Ananias. We don't know much about him. We'll find a few things, but we don't know much about him. But Saul right now is totally dependent on this disciple, Ananias. God's not going to say anything more to Saul directly. Saul has to wait for Ananias. Although it was God's intention to raise up Saul, to become the Apostle Paul, he wanted to teach him a very important lesson. Listen to me carefully tonight. A lot of people don't get this one. As mighty an apostle as Paul was to become, he had to learn a very important lesson. In God's kingdom, there are no lone rangers. What do I mean by that? There's no one who gets all of their revelations, all of their information through a direct hotline with God. That's a bunch of baloney. And if anybody tells you that, run as fast as you can. God puts us together in a body. Every member of the body needs the other members. There is no autonomous, independent member in the body of Christ. No such animal. And if anyone comes along claiming that they are, run from them. They're false. They're a false apostle. They're a false prophet. They're a false teacher. Anyone who has a correct understanding of the body of Christ understands this. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 12. We're not going to study it tonight. But the body is made up of many members, and the ear can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The finger can't say to the kidney, I don't need you. And on and on it goes. Every member is important, and no member is isolated. Think about your own body. That's what God uses to help us understand the body of Christ. All the members are connected, they're interrelated, they help one another, they cleanse one another, they nourish one another, they all need each other. And God was teaching Saul, you're going to need other members in the body, and right now, you need to sit and wait until I send you one of my little disciples named Ananias. Now, we're going to have to stop here for tonight because there's a lot more that we need to talk about here. But 
between now and next time, Saul has been blinded by the light that he saw. They have to lead him by the hand, and he has to sit and wait for three days without food, without water, as a blind man, waiting for this man, Ananias, to come and minister to him. And I think you're going to find this very encouraging, because you might be a little Ananias. Uh, You might be somebody that's otherwise unknown, an ordinary Christian, and God might just speak to you and give you the wonderful task of leading someone to Christ who's about to become an Apostle Paul or some other great Christian leader. We never know what God is up to. But when we're obedient, God will honor us, He will use us, and we will very often see amazing things happen as we obey the Lord. Thank God this little disciple named Ananias obeyed the voice of God and did what he was told to do to go to the house where Saul was sitting and waiting. We'll pick it up there next time in this fascinating story of Saul, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul's conversion. Let's pray as we close tonight. Father, I thank you for the encouragement, for the instruction, for the light, the illumination that your word brings into our lives. God, what a powerful, powerful testimony we are looking at of the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarsus. And Lord, even in our day, there are men who seem to have arisen with great power and authority that are persecuting the church, that seem to have an anti-Christ spirit operating in their lives, and they strike fear into our hearts. And Lord, for good reason, they can arrest us, they can persecute us, and yes, they can even put us to death. And many Christians throughout the world have had that fate. They've been imprisoned and even put to death. But oh God, you show us that you have all power, you have all authority, you can do anything at any time. And Lord, you had a plan and a purpose for this man Saul of Tarsus, and you arrested him in his boots on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. You brought him down to his knees, to his face, and you totally transformed his life from an enemy of the church to a great leader in the church. And God, we pray in these last days that you would raise up many Apostle Pauls. You would convert these persecutors of the church. Convert them into mighty preachers of the gospel. Mighty apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers who can carry on the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, You're a great and a mighty God. You have all authority in heaven and earth. You are sovereign. You can do whatever you please. And Lord, as King Nebuchadnezzar and as Saul of Tarsus learned, you can bring the mighty down in a moment. 
You, O oh God, know how to humble. You know how to bring down the proud in one moment. God, we surrender to you tonight, and we say, Lord, have your way in our lives. Help us to do your will. Help us to seek your face. Help us to understand what your plan and purpose and destiny for each one of us is. God, I thank you for each and every one that is partaking in this Bible study tonight. I pray that your word would sink deep into every heart, every mind. Illuminate us. Command the light of Christ to shine through the face of Jesus into our hearts and lives, giving us the knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, bless each one and make us a blessing. Keep us. Make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Turn your face toward us and give us your shalom. Shalom.